Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Benjamin Hegarty, author of The Made-Up State, Technology, Transfemininity, and Citizenship in Indonesia. Benjamin Hegarty is McKenzie Postdoctoral Fellow in Anthropology and Development Studies at the University of Melbourne, and a Research Fellow at the HIV AIDS Research Center for Health Policy and Social Innovation at Atma Jaya Catholic University. He has published articles in the Journal of Asian Studies, Transgender Studies Quarterly, and elsewhere. We spoke to Benjamin about the complexity of transgender rights during this time of growing visibility in the United States, Indonesia, and globally. The historical relationship in Indonesia between race and gender and how they were governed through regulations on dress and appearance. And the culturally sanctioned areas of public life that Indonesian trans women have been allowed to participate in, both past and present. Hello, Benjamin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, The Made-Up State, Technology, Transfemininity, and Citizenship in Indonesia. It's published by our Southeast Asia Program Publications imprint. Tell us the backstory uh, to the book. What inspired you to write it? Yeah, thank you. So I first traveled to Indonesia in the late 2000s. So I'm not sure whether everyone knows where Indonesia is, but it's a long archipelago nation in Southeast Asia. From Australia, traveling from Australia, which is where I am, it's about um, you know five five to seven hour flight away to major Indonesian cities, so relatively close and a place that a lot of people travel to for for holidays, uh, particularly to Bali, given its proximity to Australia. So I I went for um, an Australian volunteer international program, um, a little bit like the Peace Corps, I guess. And I spent time working for a civil society organization there. What struck me when I arrived in Indonesia and spent that year in the capital city, Jakarta, was the immense energy and vitality of the civil society movement at that time. So a lot of activists, a lot of different kinds of movements and a lot of kinds of forms of political protest happening. So in amongst that were really interesting forms of queer and feminist political movements or forms of interest. So these were not only kind of engaged in, I guess you could call specific kinds of issues, single kind of identity-based issues, but they seem to have wide coalitions with different different actors and movements. So with labor movements, with indigenous people's movements and with others. So it was a really exciting time. However, against that backdrop and precisely around this time, in Indonesia, what was happening was you saw the rise of a kind of anti-LGBT or a kind of anti-queer form of backlash, you could call it, against claims to recognition by queer and feminist organizations and groups in particular. What really interested me was how, uh, I guess, in the context of a post-authoritarian context, where you had a very long uh, military dictatorship in Indonesia that ended in 1998, in the aftermath of that, in the kind of democratic opening, if you can call it, you would imagine that you would see a kind of flourishing of these liberal politics. And in a way that you did, what really interested me, I guess, and, and what got me interested in this topic was, was how the public visibility of particularly trans Indonesians who had 
previously not, not been really considered much of a problem at all, suddenly became a new kind of problem, a new kind of political problem. And that took place when they, apparently when they, when they made particular kinds of, of claims and um, efforts to gain a space in, in the national imaginary. Interesting. Well, so what you had, what you said just now that the trans women in Indonesia are more publicly visible today than they have ever been in other times of history, but that this has not necessarily translated into increased levels of acceptance or recognition in the society. Tell us why that is. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things going on. So in Indonesia, it's it's interesting because I think one could say that although Indonesian trans women, and I think the terminology here is a little bit important, so I might just give a quick overview of the the terms that I use in the book. Yeah. So yeah, so so in Indonesia, the the term that I'm calling a kind of trans femininity, and I use that in a sense like a kind of, in a way, uh, it's it's an effort to use it as as a kind of adjective to describe the kinds of practices that the people that I'm referring to engage in. However, in Indonesia, of course, people, the, the, the people that I, I worked with uh, and, and alongside don't refer to themselves as trans-feminine people or necessarily. Some, some may nowadays call themselves trans-women, but the vast majority do not. They call themselves or identify themselves as uh, one of two terms nowadays, waria or transpuan. I'll focus on that first term because it's the, the more important one uh, in, to, in relation to the historical focus of the book. So waria is a combination term and it's made up of uh, two separate words. It's made up of one Indonesian word for man and one Indonesian word for woman, wanita and pria. So it kind of repurposes binary gender in a novel way, in a way that might be unfamiliar to many, many listeners. So what Wadia, in a sense, did was to take a kind of binary notion of gender and to claim that you could kind of hold together two forms, maleness and femaleness, in, in a single body. Although, of course, in the case of Wadia, uh, they generally describe themselves as um, having a woman role. Right, and that that woman soul manifests in in practices of of feminization that I I describe in the book, so that's generally the terminology that's used. So in the case of of Wadia, that term is relatively new. That term only really was uh, kind of established or came to be used in some form since the late nineteen sixties. So. What that suggests, and I think what, what the really import, important point here, is that that term was a key vehicle through which Wadia claimed a form of public visibility. And that public visibility was linked to particular kinds of spaces in the Indonesian context. So where Wadia were able to limit themselves, in a sense, to particular kinds of spaces where they were seen as suitable, so those spaces in, in particular were linked to uh, spaces of consumer capitalist uh, femininity, uh, of bodily consumption, spaces like salons, uh, spaces like, um, I guess you could say malls, um, other kinds of contexts where um, where you would imagine feminine skills at, at 
practicing femininity being valued, then it was okay, right, for, for, for Wadia to be present and visible. What is distinct from that now is, I guess, the distinctly political form that, that uh, forms of claims to trans rights and, and at, at times LGBT rights, although not all Wadia will identify themselves or align themselves with, with LGBT rights or, or even trans rights, but probably more commonly trans rights. So what's distinct about trans rights, I guess, it's, 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 is its more encompassing claim to recognition. So it's desire for kind of a form of recognition that, that confers, I guess, rights um, as, as, as citizens that are inherent to them being trans in a sense. That's of course different to the kinds of efforts at mobilization and, and, and visibility claims to rights and recognition through the spaces and practices that Wadia managed to harness throughout the 19, particularly the 1970s and 80s, um, like work in, in beauty salons, say, um, which Wadia equated with you know, forms of good deeds to society, that in doing so, they would then obtain forms of recognition. But of course, those were limited to the spaces in which Wadia performed those. They may have some flow-on effect, but generally it meant Wadia were understood to be accepted when visible under certain conditions. Okay. What, where are uh, the Wadia as far as political rights are concerned? Like where do they stand at the moment? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think the last the last 10 years have been really challenging and difficult in ways that, you know, even I didn't really see or anticipate when I started this project. Um, now, that's for the reason that Indonesia, as, as I kind of mentioned earlier, has, so in 1998, in the Indonesian kind of military general was, was forced out of, Suharto was forced out. Uh, and following that kind of democratic process of reform has taken place where there's been, you know, elections, general elections, presidential elections, and so on. As I said, you know, I, I came into that context in the late 2000s, and I found it a kind of very exhilarating moment, um, and a very energizing in some ways. At the same time, however, I guess that that space for uh, that democratic space has given rise to certain kinds of populist voices and movements. Among them, uh, I guess, forms of uh, political Islam and other groups that, that see expressions of, I guess, feminist and queer LGBT expressions of of national identity uh, expressions to be incompatible with with the nation, and so there's been efforts made to I guess really push push uh, Wadia out of and not only Wadia of course but but gay men, lesbian women, and, and others, but in, I and I would include Wadia in this, but push them out of of, of the public sphere, and this is often termed in 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 or framed in terms of what those kind of populist actors call rejection, penolakan or tolak. So rejection is a very, as you can, you know, probably imagine, is a very harsh uh, expression because it, it historically Indonesian waria have sought and thought that they had achieved forms of recognition. So in the sites that I had uh, mentioned, or acceptance rather is probably the better way to put it. 
So Penadima'an, acceptance in contexts where they were seen and respected as members of the society as equivalent to others because of the work that they did, because of how they held themselves, specific practices. So Wadia had imagined themselves to be holding that acceptance in particular spaces. It may not have been complete, but it was enough to make do to get by. And it was enough to be able to live a livable life. However, what, what took place from the mid-2010s really was this, this huge mobilization of, of uh, what was termed as rejection, Tolak LGBT. And that really, I think, surprised a lot of, of Wadia and really kind of deeply shook their sense of, of belonging um, in, in the nation. So that kind of hard-fought position that they had managed to achieve uh, was not as secure as they had imagined it to be. Um, and part of that is, I guess, this, this distinction then between what you can imagine as social kind of rights, rights that you can you can achieve, and legal or legislative, you know, rights to citizenship. Now, Wadia had really none of those latter, latter, latter rights. Um, of course, the same as any other Indonesian citizen, um, they they had they had rights, but even those seemed to be uh, relatively tenuous under the false pressure of this uh, growing populist kind of call for rejection, the rejection of certain kinds of uh, you know LGBT identities from from the na national fabric. Interesting, interesting. Well, it's it's interesting. Also, I mean, we're talking about the present in the past couple of decades, but your book goes way back in, in looking at the you know the Dutch colonial authorities and their. Uh, ideas of rejection and acceptance based on clothing and dress mm. and appearance. Tell us more about this relationship between race and gender and dress and appearance. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, this is really interesting. So oftentimes when we think of the impact of uh, colonization, of colonialism on, I guess, forms of gender diversity in indigenous societies, we often think about, I guess, kind of legal constraints on, particularly on uh, the criminalization, say, of homosexuality, the criminalization of what was termed cross-dressing at times, gender nonconformity in different guises. Now, in Indonesia, you didn't really have any of those things present. So neither neither uh, homosexuality nor uh, cross-dressing were illegal. Um, they may not have been exactly loved or adored by by Dutch um, uh, colonizers or the Dutch colonial uh, establishment or military or, um, or members of that kind of milieu. But overall, I think it would have been more or less just regarded uh, as any other practice in in a way. Um, what what is distinct about the Indonesian context and where you begin to see moves um, to regulate dress and appearance is the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And Arnett Vandermeer, um, another book in the, um, in the Southeast Asia programs series, describes very nicely the kinds of ways in which Dutch colonial rule was extended, I guess, you know, the racial kind of aspects of Dutch colonial rule and racial identity were policed through what people could wear. Um, so dress was really central to, I guess, uh, to racial identity, to governing race in the Dutch East Indies. 
And so in particular, Indonesians were not permitted to wear European clothing by and large. Now, that changed uh, in the early 20th century when Indonesians begin to protest this as a kind of form of exclusion from, I guess, a form of inequality, so that they they were not they were they were seen in a different way. Uh, they were prohibited from wearing particular kinds of clothing, and therefore they were prohibited in in acting as 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 modern modern people. Um, and so dress was in fact really central um, to this kind of form, and appearances were really central to challenges to to state state power. It was important to the Dutch control, but it was also important to uh, challenges to to Dutch rule. So at that time, you had the appearance of uh, what were called uh, Indonesian dandies. So Indonesians who would wear, you know, kind of um, uh, elaborate European. Uh, costumes, you know, with 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 uh, you know nice scarves and and eyeglasses and so on, and these caused a lot of hand wringing, I guess, in the Dutch press at the time, uh, because they were seen as kind of oddities who had left their Indonesian uh, roots behind, were kind of inauthentic subjects. Now, what's so interesting is how similar uh, the kinds of uh, narratives around Indonesian trans. Women. Now, the term of, of course matters again. There's a different term that's used slightly earlier called bunchy. But in any case, those 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 bunchy those 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 uh, those figures who those people who dressed uh, in women's clothing in public were often kind of labeled and described in along similar lines. So, and they were they were what 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 took place. So there's a one. Uh, article that I uh, discovered published in 1951 describes a, a raid on a, a public place where female sex workers and uh, and Banti sex workers are gathered in the center of Jakarta. And what's so fascinating is the way in which the, uh, the author is at great pains to point out that it's not so much a problem that they're kind of wearing women's clothing in and of itself, but it's the fact that they might deceive others that is, is the key problem. And that kind of concern about, uh, about appearances, about deception, is precisely the same kinds of anxiety that, that kind of permeated uh, Dutch racial discourse. So what I'm really interested in, I guess, is the way in which a lot of those concerns about, I guess, categorical purity, and of course, the, the the kind of crossing of categories seem to be transferred onto or through in internal forms of differentiation within Indonesian society. And gender, or, or rather sex is probably the, the better term to use, was the key, key form, one key form of governing difference that was imagined to be shared by all Indonesians. It's also important to note so interesting about that early concern about Banchi, about trans women wearing uh, women's clothes in public, was that it would have been very unusual for any Indonesian to be wearing uh, women's clothes, including women themselves. So Indonesian women, by and large, only really started to wear women's clothing in, in public in any, in any major way, you know, uh, after independence as well. So really it wouldn't wouldn't have been so remarkable in a sense for Bunchy to be or trans women to be wearing women's clothes as it would for anybody to be wearing what what was called women's clothes. What was meant by that was Western women's clothes. I was, um, I was just gonna ask. You, so, <laughs> okay. So Western women's clothes. 
Yeah. So, you know, and I think what's what's so interesting is that that women's clothes, what I'm calling women's clothes, um, exclusively really refers to, you know, I, I think Western is probably not quite right. Perhaps international is the best way to put it. Um, but that's right. So, you know, generally, you know, European, American, you know, perhaps, you know, there's, there's kind of a kind of form of East Asian uh, modern um clothing there but generally these are interna an international style rather than a specifically you know national in or nationalist indonesian style which which has its own look and appearance but this is kind of women's clothing as as probably is is common um in many parts of the world today not all of course but yeah a kind of form of modern international feminine dress so that includes, you know makeup includes kind of styled hair um, which which is is longer um, blouses dresses and so on and in this, this article much is made of the specifics of the style themselves um, so so what they look like where where this where the fashion has come from and so on that's really interesting and it's it's amazing to see how far we've come and, and at the same time how far we haven't come because you had mentioned that there are still these unwritten rules uh, particularly since the late 1960s the importance of adhering to like these very clear aesthetics of feminine beauty. So having the perhaps the the you know the international clothes and the the makeup and the hair and this the particular look that is described as beautiful. That if a if a trans woman was able to reach that level, then they would be accepted and they would be able to participate in modern society. Tell us more about this. Yeah. So so I guess it kind of is tied closely to the spaces that we open this conversation with, right? So under certain conditions, uh, Indonesian Wadia would be able to achieve a form of, of acceptance and recognition, but only, only if they were able to accomplish a competent and even skillful form of femininity. Now, of course, this differed widely along axes of class, of geography. Now, Indonesia is, of course, a very large place. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, kind of people and styles and aspirations. And I think a really good space or context to, to look for or understand this is to think about kind of a, an ordinary beauty salon, which is probably present in almost every Indonesian small town or city which is run by Awadia. This may be less so the case today, but it certainly was the case uh, at least until you know, the 1990s. But in, in any case, where Wadia are kind of fulfilling a function in making up people for special events and occasions in particular. So that's the kind of uh, role, for example, Awadia will play. So it might be, for example, wedding makeup would be one role that Wadia undertake in that that, that setting. So in being really skillful and competent at making up other people, so not only oneself, but other people, then you are kind of participating in a kind of national culture. Wedding makeup is a good example because, of course, marriage is a really important ritual, you could say, and, and in a way, legal kind of contract that binds you into the nation, that, that ties you to the nation. So it's an important expression of national identity and belonging and communal identity as well. And so in participating in that ritual 
through making up the uh, bride and groom in their bridal outfit, Wadia articulate that they too are belonging to Indonesian society. And this has been a kind of important site in which Wadia uh, have been able to do that. So that's a site where Wadia belong, right? So this is the kind of an ideal scenario. Now, if we look the other way, if we think about where Wadia are imagined not belong or have a much more tenuous form of belonging, you wouldn't have to go very far. You'd probably just walk out of the uh, salon and you'd might be a slightly different time of day, but you would, you know, much later at night, but you would walk down, you know, one or two side streets and you might see some wadia. Again, less, this is less the case today, but certainly was the case even until the 2000s that you would see wadia, you know, along the street at night conducting sex work. So this is, you know, relatively common, you know, or alternatively carrying a small speaker and singing through a microphone kind of a form of busking or street performance, you, you, you could call it. So both of these are these practices, and they're both forms of, of making money as well, are banned according to many Indonesian city regulations. So what what takes place if if you know if what are kind of noticed or seen by city authorities and 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 specific kinds of police, so law, really order, public order police. Wadiya are usually ir- arrested or chase, they're chased and they're arrested and they're taken to nowadays what are called rehabilitation centres where, you know, they might be gi- given a fine, they might be asked to participate in certain kinds of, of training which would uh, invoke, you know, f- for vocations so that they could make a living in a way that is not uh, causing causing disrepute or disrupting public order as the, the 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 common expression and indeed the regulation that that prohibits those activities suggests, but they will be given training in skills like makeup, in skills like salon work, hair cutting, and so on and so forth. So, in order to kind of move them away or rehabilitate them out of these kinds of unruly forms of public appearance. So what you can see, I guess, in this process is that Wadia are able to participate in society, but in a way that uh, structures their public vis- visibility. So their public visibility is only permitted under certain conditions. It's it's a highly kind of conditional form of public visibility, and so these other these other forms of these other practices of making a living and of indeed building communal life. So for Wadia, often these are kind of collective experiences, both sex work and, and street performance. They bind people into a kind of uh, sense of, of, of working together with others in some sense, like, like unions. Um, these are, are not permitted and, and indeed prohibited, seen as a disruption of, of, of public order and of, of moral order. So I think the relationship between these two forms of visibility which is tolerated and even under under some conditions accepted and that which is again under some conditions tolerated where it's not seen or it's placed in the dark or rejected is a really of two really important poles to think about what trans visibility means in Indonesia um, and how claims to citizenship are, are made and what their kind of texture is wow that's so so interesting and I can see the parallels with 
the trans community in the United States and in the West by you, many times you learn a lot about your own country by looking at another country. And so anyone that, that is listening to this, I encourage them to, to read your new book, uh, The Made-Up State, Technology, Trans Femininity, and Citizenship in Indonesia. And it will give you insight into your own country, but also the fascinating world, both historical and present day of Indonesia. So thank you so much, Benjamin, for, for writing the book and for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Benjamin Hegarty, author of The Made-Up State, Technology, Transfemininity, and Citizenship in Indonesia. If you'd like to purchase Benjamin's book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website, which is cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.